Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Today's message is titled, Love and Hate. You know, one thing people should learn as they grow up and become mature men and women is that we are all different from each other. Now, of course, we all share many things in common, but each of us as individuals are different. One of the things that you come to learn as you mature in Christ is that Christians are different from each other, and so are the churches where they are involved. Churches are all different, as different as individual people are, in other words. And yet, there's a similarity between churches as well, of course. Some churches are strong, some are weak. Some are large, some are small, and some are in between. Some churches are very outward-focused. Some are more inward-focused. Now, hopefully, we see by studying these two chapters of the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, that although this book was written almost 2,000 years ago, it is just as relevant to us today as it was to our brothers and sisters back then. So before going any further, let's understand three things to keep in mind as we study these letters. First, as I have said repeatedly, these letters were written to seven real churches. I think that's important to keep in mind because there are some Bible teachers and we've outlined the different approaches to Revelation, the futurist, the historicalist, the preterist, and the idealist. All of those have somewhat different ways of understanding these letters to the churches. And there's some who would claim that these are not literal churches at all, but they're just meant to be symbolic of every church in all ages. Or maybe they would say they are, they were real churches, but the key issue is the symbolism and as it applies across the ages. And then some would say they represent various actual stages of church history. I think it's clear from the text itself, however, that for one thing, these are not fictional churches. These are real churches with real problems in a real-life church congregation that are being addressed here by Jesus. And there's something else worth noting about this list of churches. And that is that the very order in which those churches are listed, and you notice they're listed by city, by town, all of these places, Ephesus, Smyrna, Laodicea, uh, Pergamos, these are all cities in that part of the Roman Empire. Again, to remind you, the place we know today as modern Turkey. What we know from archaeological studies and historical research is that the order in which these cities are listed follows almost exactly an ancient Roman postal route. You know, we maybe don't often think of ancient peoples having the ability to send and receive mail like we do, but they did. They had means of communicating with others across distances by runners or horse riders or whatever it may be. And like all of us, uh, our modern versions of postal service, they follow certain routes. Now you may have, if you have a study Bible, uh, maps in the back of your Bible that it may have a special map showing you the location of the seven churches of Asia. And you can see the sequence that they follow. So uh, this is one thing that lets us know these are real churches in a real place. But then secondly, the lessons that we learn from these letters to the churches, yes, they do have a much more wide, broad, symbolic application across the ages. All of the problems that are going to be addressed in these letters to the churches, 
Well, they reveal to us great lessons that we can learn because we today face many of the same issues. That is a part of the beauty and the truthfulness of God's divine word. Yes, the word comes to us. Scripture comes to us from ages long past, and it comes across different cultures and language groups, but its message is just as true and meaningful today as it was back then. And even the number of these churches emphasizes the way in which those churches do represent in some way all churches. I mean, the number seven itself in Scripture signifies wholeness or completeness. And I'm sure there must have been more than just seven churches in that part of Asia in those days. But the Lord directs his message to the, to the pastors or the angel of these seven churches in particular. Maybe not only because they were the most important of that day, but also, I think, because of the meaning of the number. Thirdly, the third thing we need to keep in mind is that there is a definite structure, a definite theme to these letters. So let's look at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, if you remember in our reading in chapter 1, that is the vision John saw of our Lord Jesus Christ walking in the midst of this imagery. And, I, and to some extent, that recalls the original divine temple constructed by King Solomon. It had those elements in it. Here, though, Christ is speaking directly to the churches. He sends this message to this particular church at Ephesus by speaking to the angel of that church. Now, we don't understand this to mean this being at the church with wings on his back. That's not really what an angel is in Scripture. The Greek word here translated angel means the messenger, most likely the pastor or the bishop of that church. The Lord congratulates them on some things, but he is critical of them on others. So let's think, first of all, about what they're being congratulated, for, what they're being commended for. You're getting the, the pat on the back for this. Look at verses 2 to 3, and then we'll look at verse 6. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear evil men, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, but are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up under persecution, he, he implies, for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And then jump over to verse 6. The other thing he congratulates him for, he says, yet this I have or excuse me, yet this you have. In other words, I, I'm going to congratulate you for this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans that I also hate. We'll say more about that in just a moment, but let's notice that this is a hard-working church. This is another thing that shows you that these were real churches. There are specific things mentioned that were characteristic of those particular churches. Notice, too, that he congratulates them for their lack of the tolerance of wicked men. Apparently, this was a major problem in that place, in that time, in those churches. Evil men of whatever persuasion were showing up and trying to influence the church. You know, uh, Bill, in our Sunday school class a few weeks ago, when we were talking about Isaiah 42, I think it was, and the issue of idol worship, how the Lord condemned that, and he pointed us to the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 109, where the catechism is addressing the issue of the second commandment that prohibits idol worship. And the catechism question asks, what are the sins forbidden in the second commandment? 
And a partial answer, there's a lot of things it says in reply, but it does say this, at least in the original Westminster Larger Catechism. It says, the sins forbidden in the second commandment are tolerating a false religion. So those folks at Ephesus would not do that. They wouldn't have the uh, coexist bumper sticker on their car. We today certainly have many, many churches that fall uh, into that category. They fail to keep their guard up against errors in doctrine, but that was not a problem for the church at Ephesus. As I said, that made them stand out. They didn't care whether anybody liked it or not. They weren't going to compromise. They were not going to give in to false teachers and evil men. And note well that that lack of tolerance is something Jesus applauded them for. Now look, there are times in the life of a church or in your own Christian life or your own personal life where you need to be flexible and you need to be tolerant of other people and their opinions, especially in the church, especially in your family. But you see, our problem today is that many, many people have raised what they call tolerance to the level of an absolute virtue. But it's worth asking, it is always good to be tolerant? Apparently not, because these folks at the church at Ephesus were not tolerant of false apostles and evil men, and they're being congratulated for it by the divine Son of God. Think of it this way. What if we allow our food to be tolerant of certain germs? Well, there's a name for that. It's called contaminated or poisoned food. Considering what the Lord says to the church at Ephesus, what do you think the Lord would say about a modern church, for example, that might be paid the following uh, very woke compliment, if I can put it that way. My, how we admire your tolerance, first church of wherever. You have an elder in your church who is an atheist, and you have one who is a Buddhist, And you have one who is a Presbyterian, you've got a Baptist on your session, you've got a Pentecostal, and you've even got a Hindu on your elder board. Friends, that is not the sort of compliment the Lord is looking for his church to receive. At the church at Ephesus, in those days at least, they would have never received such a left-handed compliment. Those people were quick to spot false apostles. Now that was a problem for them. And again, let me remind you that any time we see prohibitions in Scripture, it means that it's been a problem in the past or in the present. The Lord doesn't say, don't do this or stop doing this for something that nobody ever thought about doing. So in that time and in that place, because of the fairly recent nature of the commissioning of the 12 apostles by Jesus, there were people scattered all over the known world of the day, that is the Roman Empire, where these churches had grown up under the authentic teaching of the apostles. And there were guys who would show up and say, well, you know, uh, I'm the apostle John. I mean, the people wouldn't know John from anybody. They just might assume he was true, especially if he sounded authentic. Or they might say, I was a direct pupil. I'm a direct secretary for the apostle Peter, so you can trust what I tell you. Well, they didn't fall for that. They didn't just take the word of every Tom, Dick, and Harry that walked into their service and claimed to be a Bible teacher. They tested such people. That is, they examined them and they found them to be liars. It's interesting when you consider, as we did some time ago now when we studied through the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, 
one of my personal favorite passages in all the New Testament, where Paul is on his journey, and I believe Luke wrote that they stopped in Miletus, and he calls for the elders of the church at Ephesus, the elders from this very church. This was some time before John wrote Revelation. And he calls them together, and after telling them, you know, the, the Spirit has told me I'm going to be in trouble, I'm going to be persecuted. But he says, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life worth anything, that I may finish the course that the Lord gave me. And then he tells them, I'm warning you, after I depart, ravenous wolves, meaning those who promote false doctrine, are going to come into the church and try to fool even the elect. So he warned them even then, don't let that happen. See, the city of Ephesus was a town of major importance to the Romans. Today, we might compare it to San Francisco or New York City, or at least how those places used to be. Um, It was a center of Roman culture and art and science, and it was also famous for its dedication to pagan religion, to what we would call witchcraft, and also the worship of the emperor, the worship of the Roman state. It was a city also, and some of you may find this very shocking to know, But it's the truth. It was a city where there were Jewish scholars, rabbis, and scribes who were attempting a synthesis of Old Testament religion with the pagan elements of Roman and Greek religion. Now You might find that fantastic and hard to believe, but maybe you need to read your Old Testament more carefully. Because this was a constant temptation for the ancient Israelites. They were surrounded by these idol-worshipping pagan peoples, and it was a constant threat to them because they were so drawn to it. And here, they, some of these scholars were actually somewhat successful in their own minds, at least. They developed what we might call a Judaic version of the New Age movement, New Age religion. And that's why the people at the church at Ephesus were always on their guard against false teaching. It was all around them. And they had been warned by Paul, by John, and now by Jesus himself To be careful of this. Compromise is one of the major failings in our churches today. And it has been, it was for almost all of the 20th century, and that continues right along into the 21st. There are some so-called Christian churches where it strains the definition to term them by the word Christian at all. I remember some years ago now, when I was pastor of a church in upstate New York, Reading about a a local church in that area, the capital region of Albany, Schenectady, and Saratoga, that there was a church that was hosting a Tibetan Buddhist monk as a guest speaker. There are some churches where New Age teachings and occultism and pop psychology, they're a regular ingredient of the teaching. But they've been so skillfully blended into biblical verses and Bible verses that many people are not even aware that they're being misled. And I don't mind naming some names here, at least one. Take, for example, Joel Osteen. Now, a lot of people make fun of him, and and justly so, I think. But the key thing is, one thing I want you to notice, is if you ever see that guy on TV, he's got this cavernous, massive church. Well, I think it used to be a uh, a coliseum for one of the, for the Houston NBA team, the Houston whoever's, it seeks, what, 16, 20,000 people? And usually it's packed. And out comes Joel Osteen, and he's got his, you know, three-piece suit on, and he's got his King James Bible. And 
in between one or two verses, he's basically spouting off positive thinking, new age, pop psychology teachings. And the people think they're getting the scriptures, but they're not. Listen, that kind of church and the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds that are carbon copies of it, they didn't get that way overnight. Those things just didn't pop up out of nowhere because it begins much earlier, maybe decades or centuries earlier with false teachers, false elders and pastors who call into question the absolute authority of Holy Scripture and its application to all areas of life. So also the Lord is praising these people, not only for their rejecting false apostles and false teaching, but he also praises them. Now notice he doesn't say because you reject the deeds of the Nicolaitans. He doesn't say because you don't really like them very much. He says because they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. See, the Bible teaches us, and this may shock the delicate sensibilities of some folks, but the biblical teaching is that there are some people and some of their deeds that they do that God hates. Here Christ says that he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans and so does the Ephesian church. And for that, they're being celebrated and encouraged. Now surely, certainly it must have occurred to us that for the Lord to use that kind of strong language to describe his utter disdain for the deeds and actions of these certain group of people, that those deeds, those actions must be very bad indeed. Surely the Nicolaitans must have been mass murderers or serial killers. Surely they must have been guilty of crimes against humanity for the Lord to declare that he hates their deeds. I mean, what on earth were these Nicolaitans doing that Christ hated so? Well, are you ready for this? What they were doing was sort of what I was describing about the Jewish scholars earlier. They were trying to blend in. They didn't want to be different from the cultural landscape of Ephesus. They wanted to be Christians and blend in well with the society where they lived. So for them, that meant they were not at all hesitant, quite happy actually, I think, to eat foods that had been sacrificed to pagan idols. They were eager to join, at least some of them, I guess, to join in the sexual immorality of the rest of the pagans in that town. So if the Nicolaitans had had their way, it would have been the world that changed the church rather than the church changing the world. Don't we today see the descendants of the Nicolaitans in every church on every corner? We are so, we are so surrounded by as much ungodliness as the Ephesians were, and like them, it is our mission to remain pure. But that is something we simply cannot do without the Lord's help. And my friends, by God's grace, he can empower us to live in the world without the world living in us. All right, so those are the things that he congratulates them for, but he's not done yet. So look at verses 4 through 7. And of course, I'm reading from the New King James Version. Jesus says, though, but I have this against you. In other words, I'm, I'm counting this in your favor, but this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. It's the word agapain. The, the Greek term love, agapain. He says, remember then from what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Notice that last section of verse 7. Look at it. I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Our mind should immediately go back to the book of Genesis. As I said last time, uh, Revelation is actually the sequel to the book of Genesis in many ways. Revelation makes constant reference to Older Testament passages and ideas. This is one of them. Which is in the paradise of God, the heavenly and soon-to-be earthly Garden of Eden. Now, let me ask you a question. How would we feel if the Lord sent a letter personally signed, sealed, and delivered to our church with that kind of charge against us? What a horrible thing to hear from our King of Kings. But that's what happened at Ephesus. Yes, they were right on board. They were razor sharp in spotting false doctrine and hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans. But in other things, they had come, become spiritually lazy. The bride had lost sight of the bridegroom. The fires were fading, and that church was in danger of being snuffed out. Wow. I mean, how could you be so doctrinally pure and be in danger of being snuffed out? Well, the Lord just told us right there. The things that those people were doing in the beginning of their lives as a church, they had completely left aside for the most part. In Matthew 13, Jesus told the parable about the four kinds of seeds And one of those kinds of seeds fell into a thorny area of the ground. And although it began to grow well at first, eventually the thorns choked it out. And so if we see those symptoms in our church, in our lives, the Lord gives us a remedy in verse 5. And I'd like to close with this part of the passage and and this remedy. I've identified three aspects of it and conveniently put it in the form of the three R's. The three R's of church or individual renewal or reformation. That's what these people needed. Maybe that's what we need. The first R is for remember. Think about the past, he tells them. Review what has happened in your life. Someone has calculated that the word or some version of the word remember is used over 300 times in the Bible. That's a lot. And in God's word, it is almost always something very important that we are called to remember. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, Ecclesiastes 12.1. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, Exodus 21. Remember the Lord, we are told in Nehemiah 4.14. And Paul commands us to remember Jesus being raised from the dead in 2 Timothy 2.8. We're told to remember those in prison. We're told to remember the poor. We're told to remember our church leaders. And so we are frequently being told to remember certain things and to reflect on the things of God. That's the first R. The second is repent. After we remember, Jesus tells us that we have to do something. And that something is to repent. Love equals obedience. Real change is called for. It's not enough to resolve to do better and to intend to make things right. Actual change in our thinking and our lifestyle and habits are a must. Maybe some of us need to do that. Maybe we need to repent concerning our way of living. Maybe, therefore, we must stop doing what we have been doing. Stop those things which has caused us to veer away from Christ and return to Him. Go back to those things which helped us grow and draw closer to Him. Have no more to do with the things that have ensnared us and pulled us away. So we are to remember, we are to repent, and then the third and final R is redo. Redo. In verse 5, 
He calls upon the Ephesian Christians to do the first works. Redo what you were doing at the beginning. Do what you were doing when you were walking tall and strong for Christ. And if the Ephesians needed any motivation to deal with this matter, and if we today need any encouragement along those lines, well, the Lord certainly provides it in verse 5 as well, where he says, Repent and do the works you did. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now look, if that sounds like a threat, well, that's exactly what it is. Because this is serious business. Repent or else. And here is something that we dare not miss from this Ephesian church and the letter to it. It is entirely possible to have all the right doctrines to really focus hard on being pure as the driven snow. That is in terms of right morals and, and correct doctrine. And yet still grow cold in our love for Christ and each other. Friends, there are so many challenges to the Christian's walk that we cannot begin to be successful or triumphant without the Spirit's help. And by God's grace, may we continually seek and receive that help. Let us pray.